As we come to God's word, I want to ask for the Lord's blessing on that time as well. Father, we want to see Jesus. He alone is good enough for us. None of us is good enough for ourselves. Times like this help to make that clear. And so we pray that through your word this morning, by your spirit, you would show us Christ and make us like him. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a lot of different ways to describe this time that we're experiencing right now. It is bewildering. It is scary. It is, among so many things, as Aaron mentioned, unpredictable. It's unpredictable. What do you do when things get unpredictable? You know what I do? I guess. I try to figure out uh, what this means and what's going to happen as a result. And maybe you've, maybe you've seen that that's exactly what happens on the news. This is free, but I'd encourage you to think about this as you're, as you're bombarded by the news during these days. If you're reading a news article, ask, is this telling me what has happened? Or is this telling me what that means and what's going to happen next? Because the reality is that all sides of the media, with their legitimate purposes, run out of new things to talk about pretty quickly, even in a time like this. And because they're paid to continue to produce content, they are left after they have reported what's actually new with projecting and interpreting. What does this mean and what's going to happen next? I would encourage you, if you have been perhaps an over-consumer of the news and found that to be unhealthy like I have at certain times, when you go to look at the news, be asking the question, is this telling me about something new that's happened? Or is this telling me what it means and what's going to happen next? If it's what it means and what's going to happen next, I would encourage you to say, they don't know. We can take educated guesses, so can I. And that's not wrong, but it's not enough. And it's not reliable. What we need most in times like this, as in all times, is not to know what. What does this mean? What's going to happen next? What do I do? What we need in times like this is not most to know what, but to know who. It's no good walking down the right path. Where should I go next? Where is that? What do I do next? Even if I can guess rightly at what the right path is, it's no good going down that right path if I don't go down it with the right person. And I want you to know, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know who's with you during this time. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you've joined us. And I hope that hearing about Jesus this morning will encourage you to be a believer in Jesus because the picture of Jesus that we have in our passage this morning is one that's held out to you to call you to trust him. If you are a believer in Jesus, I want you to know who's with you during this time. I know you don't see him, never seen him. That's strange for a relationship. But he is real. And one of the great sources of encouragement for a believer is that Jesus 
is with you and for you today. And sometimes it really helps for us to stop and ask the question, well, who is this? What's he like? Who is this Jesus? You can see what he's like in the pages of the Gospels. If you have a Bible available, you can find that in the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. This morning we want to look at a particular picture, the first half of a particular picture. In John 11, we see a picture of the same Jesus who is with us now and cares for us now. I want to take the next two weeks, if the Lord allows, to look at a picture of Jesus in John 11. We're going to go through verse 27 this morning, and I'm going to read this section of the story first. John 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the brothers sent to him, saying, So the sisters, rather, sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that, he, that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. In this story, we find six things about Jesus. Maybe 600, but I'm going to point out six with the Lord's help over the next two weeks. Three of them this week and three next week in the second half of the story. Three things this week. First, that Jesus loves his friends. Second, that Jesus does what we don't expect. And third, that Jesus is the point. He loves his friends. He does what we don't expect. And he is the point. We see in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus loves his friends. Even speaking about people as Jesus' friends may, may sound strange. I wonder if it even sounds a little bit a little bit sacrilegious, uh, sort of lowering Jesus down to a peer level with us. And that's not what's meant by the term. And at the same time, Jesus tells his disciples a little bit later in John, he says, I, I call you friends. And we can see in the way that the sisters send to Jesus that he has treated them as friends. And that as friends, they expect a certain response from him. In a very special way, and these ladies seem to understand this, Jesus loves his friends. And we know, we've seen earlier in John 3.16, one of the best known verses in the Bible, that God loves the world. He loved the world so much that he sent his son into the world, his son that shares his love for the whole world. At the same time, I want you to know if you're a Christian, that Jesus has a special kind of attentive love for his friends. And I want you to know, if you're not a Christian, that you are called, invited, urged, even commanded to receive that same love and friendship. That call, that command, is John's very reason for writing this whole book, including his very reason for writing this story. This friendship is held out to everyone. And I want you to see what that friendship looks like, what it looks like for Jesus to love his friends. You can see that Jesus' friends have an expectation in the message that they send to him. Here's the message. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Why did they send him that message? What's the point? First, you see something about the way that they frame their message. Who do they address their message to, and what do they call him? Well, they call him Lord. That probably at this point in the story doesn't mean they're calling him God. The word can mean a range of different things. I think what's packed into the meaning of that word here is this basic idea. Jesus, you don't answer to us. We answer to you. You're the one that speaks authoritatively. You're the one that's in charge. We need to hear from you. And at the same time, we need you. And that helps us to see that calling Jesus Lord helps us to see that they are not calling in a favor. They're, they're not saying, Jesus, remember that time that you said you owe us one? Well, we're calling that in now. They're not banking on Jesus' obligation to them. They're banking on Jesus' heart toward them. They know something of his love. They know his love can be trusted. 
They anticipate that he will hear when he calls them, and they anticipate that he will respond. They don't even have to say, so will you please come? They expect that Jesus knows what they mean when they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I wonder if during this time, if you have the same expectation of your Lord, do you expect when you call on him that he's going to hear you? Do you anticipate that he's going to respond to you? Do you know that he is more immediately available to you now? From where he sits on his throne in victory, he's more immediately available to you than he was even to Mary and Martha. He was perhaps 90 miles away from them. He's invisible to you. But his heart was near to them, and they knew it. And his heart is near to you, and I want you to know that. You don't see him, and so you and I forget about him. But he doesn't forget about you. He is better at listening to you than you are at talking to him. He is attentive. He cares. And I want us to have the same expectation that Jesus will listen and respond as Jesus' friends have when they send him this message. Paul, at the end of his life, talked about how all of his human friends at one point had abandoned him. He said, at my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone, everyone who was local at least, abandoned me. He said, may it not be counted against them. And then he said, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord was with me. Paul knew something, especially in this very crucial moment of his life, when his life was on the line, he could tell that Jesus was near. Jesus cared. And the author to the Hebrews writes about how Jesus drew near to us in order that he might be near to us now. He became like us in order that he might be sympathetic to us. In the words of Hebrews 2.18, because he suffered when tempted, because he dealt with what we dealt with, because he became like us in our humanity, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able. He's near. He's listening. He invites us into his presence. So let's follow the model of Jesus' friends when he was on earth. Lord, he whom you love is ill. You might come to Jesus in the same way. Lord, he whom you love is stressed. Lord, you love me, and I am under a great deal of anxiety right now. I need your help. Lord, she whom you love is isolated and lonely. And it's getting hard. Lord, the child that you love is bored and stir-crazy. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Some of us perhaps are facing that even right now. They expected him to respond. We should expect him to respond because Jesus loves his friends. And Jesus is going to respond. In fact, he says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to to death. Now you might know this story in John 11, if you've 
heard the name Lazarus, then maybe you have some familiarity with what this story is all about and where it goes. And so it might sound strange that Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. So put a pin in that statement. Jesus means more than it sounds like he means, especially if you know the end of the story. What he does mean is bigger than what we might expect, and it will become clear. Jesus responds differently than we might expect. He loves his friends, and so he responds to his friends, and that response is probably not the one that we would expect love to produce. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And starting in verse 6, we see the second point about Jesus. Jesus does what we don't expect. Jesus loved his friends. His friends were in need, and he had the ability to do something about it, so he didn't. Look at verse 6, prefaced with, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. There's at least one translation that tries to make sense of what Jesus is doing here, tries to make sense of his unexpected delay by saying, so although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days, making it sound as if there's a tension between Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus' decision to stay. I, I love them, but even though I love them, I, I have to stay here for other reasons. There's no tension. There's no contrast. There's a reason. Jesus stays two days longer because he loves them. The correct translation is very, very clear here. It's reflected in most translations. He loved them, so he stayed. He has something better for them than the thing that they legitimately desire right now. He has something that he wants them to see. And he knows that it is best seen against a dark backdrop. And once they see it, they are never going to want to unsee it, and they will never question his way of helping them to see it. Not as if Jesus stands from a distance saying, look, this is going to hurt, but this is what's best for you. In fact, he is going to draw near. He's going to come, and he's going to show that his affection for them has never been compromised. He's going to show that this is not a matter of coldly standing off at a distance saying, I'm going to do what's best for you. I love you, but this is what's going to have to happen. He's going to demonstrate that his affection is greater for them than they ever would have imagined by coming, and by coming at great risk to himself. He's actually going to leave for Bethany soon, and Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem. And his disciples know what kind of risk that's going to involve. In verse 7, after he had said, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. That's sort of the county in which Jerusalem is. 
In verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? You go there now. You're going at risk of your own life. And Jesus says, that's right. And it's worth it because we have work to do. There are things that people need to see. More than that, there is a person that people need to see. People need the light. People need to see the light. And we have brief opportunity to show it to them. Even though it is a place of not only great risk, but intentional giving up of himself. Jesus says, we are going. That's what this whole delay has, has been about, and that is what going is about. And he begins to talk to them about Lazarus in verse 11. He tells them that he's gotten his cue that it's time to go. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And as is so common with the disciples, as is so common with us, they have a short-sighted view of what Jesus really means. They see it as something smaller than, we, than, than he understands it to be, and we can share this with them. And they just think he's talking about sleeping, and they say, Lord, if he's asleep, there's no sense waking him up. Sick people need to sleep so they'll get better. And so he clarifies for them in verse 13, or verse 14, rather, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And Thomas seems to understand the risk once again, and he says to the other disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. See how... Jesus is doing something different than the thing that those he loves, those who expect him to respond in love, something different than they expect him to do. And Jesus does that in our lives as well. It's not because he has to do something that's in contrast with his love for us. It's because his love is bigger and better than the love we might envision him to have. Sometimes we try to make sense of the decisions that flow from Jesus' love. We try to figure out what exactly does this mean? Why, why is Jesus doing this? And sometimes he hasn't told us yet. He hasn't given us the full picture of why he is exercising his love in the way that he is. And sometimes when we insist on figuring it all out now, we come up with a much smaller picture than what's real. And as a result, we miss the point. Jesus helps us not to miss the point. He gives us the big picture of what he's after in verses 17 through 27. Jesus loves his friends. In his love for his friends, he sometimes does what we don't expect. And the point of all this is... Jesus himself. He wants his friends to know him. He wants his friends to find life in him. And so Jesus is coming for his friends, and he's coming with life. Jesus says, let us go to him. 
In verse 17, Jesus shows up in Bethany. Bethany is a town that's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's the place where Mary and Martha live and where Lazarus did live until he died. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha is a beautiful picture of uh, a certain kind of personality, a certain kind of wiring, exercising trust in Jesus. Martha is a woman of action, clearly. Her sister is wired very, very differently from her, both wired in the way that God intended for them. And yet Martha here is the woman who has the ability uh, from God in the midst of an, an indescribable difficulty, an indescribable set of pain to see through all that and decide, here's how I need to act now. I just found Jesus is here. This is really hard for me, but I'm going to move. And so she goes to him. Mary is so overwhelmed with emotion and understandably so, that she stays there, but Martha acts, and she comes to Jesus. And she talks to him, and what she says in verse 21 is loaded with meaning and significance. It really is a beautiful statement. Verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We hear a lot of things here. We, we don't hear a rebuke, but we do hear confusion. We do hear, Lord, this is painful. I, I know that you could have done something about this. You could have gotten here. You could have kept my brother from dying. I know that this is possible for you. And at the same time, she uses that same word again. Lord, Lord, I know. I haven't stopped believing that you have the authority to do this. I haven't stopped believing in you. I know that you could have done something about this, and I haven't stopped calling you Lord. And so her response is packed with the reality of her pain and with her acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And so Jesus meets her where she is. And she has acknowledged Jesus as well. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I know that you are who you say you are. I haven't stopped believing in that, even with the fog of confusion that I'm facing right now. Jesus said to her, verse 2, Your brother will rise again. And look at Martha's response. Her response is a response of faith. She says in verse 24, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's not putting Jesus off. What, what's she doing there? She's responding in faith. Faith is not some kind of vague spiritual optimism that makes happen whatever you want to have happen, or that just kind of helps you to get through what you're going through because you have good feelings about what's coming next. Faith, biblical faith, relies on what God has said. It relies on what God has told us. It relies on God's 
promises. That's what biblical faith is, and that's what Martha is doing here. She is hanging on the promises of God. Either perhaps she has in mind the promises in Daniel 12, verses 2 to 3, about the resurrection and people who are righteous, we know from a bigger picture, righteous by faith, rising in glory. Maybe she's hanging on the promises of God from the mouth of Jesus himself. Either way, she knows that there is a resurrection coming, and she believes in it. <clears throat> now, what if you'd been there? What if you had been one of Jesus' disciples? And what if in the midst of the, con the confusing-sounding things that you heard from him when you were 90 miles away, what if, what if you're with him and, and you're behind Jesus while he's talking to Martha and she says, I know, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And all of a sudden it clicks in your head, wait a minute, Jesus said Lazarus was sleeping and then he told me that meant that he was dead. And Jesus said that he was going to go awaken him from his sleep. So what else can that mean but that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead now? So you sort of have this insight that all of a sudden, no, Jesus isn't talking about eventually. He's talking about now. And if you could just jump out from behind Jesus and grab Martha by the shoulders and say, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Your brother is going to rise from the dead today. It's going to happen today. This resurrection eventually is not what Jesus means and it's really good that nobody remembered that at the time because Jesus would have had to grab that disciple by his shoulders and say, what you're saying is not what Jesus means either. Both events are true. Lazarus, spoiler alert, is going to rise from the dead today in the story next week as it's presented. Lazarus is going to rise in the resurrection on the last day. Lazarus is a believer in Jesus the point is not an event, near-term or long-term. The point is not what is going to happen next. The point is who's here. The point is a person. And that's where Jesus goes. The point is not when is your brother going to get up. The point is who am I. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. And the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Regardless of what happens in the meantime, regardless of near term circumstances, which Jesus deeply cares for. Let's see that Jesus enters into the near term pain, even knowing what he's going to do. That comes next week. Jesus cares about. All of those things. And Jesus is going to do something bigger than all of the concerns that are present in the people around him. Remember, Jesus has said, this illness does not lead to death. This illness, in other words, is not aimed at death. This illness results in death, but it's not aimed at death. In this case, it's actually aimed through death, but it's not aimed at death. It's aimed at something bigger. Jesus has said what that something bigger is. 
This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The point of this is that the Son of God would be glorified. How? How is Jesus going to be glorified through this illness and its near-term results? In one sense, we could say, well, by doing an amazing sign. But he's going to be glorified in a way that, once again, we might not expect. This sign is going to lead to Jesus' plans for himself. Jesus has described earlier in John the fact that he is going to be lifted up. He is going to be glorified by being lifted up, and he uses this term multiple times in John, and we find out eventually what he means by being lifted up. He means that he is going to be crucified. He means that he is going to die. And the way that Jesus is going to be glorified is by people looking at him as the Lamb of God, crucified for the sins of the world, and believe in him and find life in his name. The Son of God is going to be glorified through this by showing that he is who he says he is, so that when he is lifted up, people will look to him. People will find life in him. That's the way that he can be the resurrection and the life, by taking the results, the deserved results of our sin on himself, on the cross, in order to extend resurrection life to us. Now, in one sense, it's not really fair for us, for me, to stop short of the climax of this story in John 11. Why don't we keep going and get to the resurrection? Well, in one sense, it's a matter of timing. In another sense, it's because that resurrection is not the point. Where else do we see the miracle of life in John 11? It's in this passage. It's in verse 27. Jesus is asked, Whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In verse 27, she, Martha, said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She's found life in him. She's found the one who is the resurrection and the life. In one sense, Martha, having found life in Jesus by trusting him, is an even greater miracle than the one Jesus is going to do by raising Lazarus physically from the dead. Jesus loves his friends. Jesus is wise enough to love them in ways that are bigger than they might expect. Jesus is the point, and the point that we are supposed to see is described at the end of the book of John. John tells us why he has written his letter and why he has written these stories about these signs that Jesus has done, in many ways climaxed by this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. And John gets to the point in John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's remember that the Jesus who is with us through this loves us with a nearness of heart that it's easy for us to forget about that he doesn't forget about. In that love, he will do things that are better than we expect. And he is the point. The Jesus who is with us is the Jesus who gave his life to purchase ours. So let's look to him and remember him as that Savior, as that Lord, as that victorious great high priest. Father, during this time, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the Jesus who is near to us. I pray that you would help each one of us to find life in his name and to experience in fuller and fuller measure the life that we find in him. The reconciliation to you, the free access to your presence, the ability to come to the one who is able to hear us, who is able to give life, and to know that we're heard and cared for. Father, guide us into the presence of Jesus by your spirit. In Jesus' name.